Hello, people. Welcome to Techno Social. If you like what we're doing, then please consider liking us on YouTube and on your podcast provider, sharing our content round, and generally telling people about it. And maybe even consider giving us a donation on patreon.com forward slash techno social. I was listening to that announcement you made about the Emerge podcast this mm. morning, actually. Mm. Just thinking about, so you saying that you're changing direction a little bit, perhaps mm. from exploring, what was the phrase you used? Say systems and systems transformation with a grounding in, say, personal development, and then perhaps mm. looking at it from the other direction, like going more into actually personal development in the context of the fact that we're going through systems change hmm. i was running like maybe it would be an interesting topic to just explore first is like why this sense of a need for personal development for say leveling up humanity and how we express ourselves as humans within this time and as you yeah. said i don't know if you have all the answers to that but i've got some thoughts and you've got some thoughts sure sure with that. yeah so why why the focus on personal development or personal change yeah well, so one, one thing that I think I'm really fascinated by, and this is probably to some degree my Buddhist training, is that it seems obvious to me and to many people that there is this dichotomy between systems change and personal transformation. And yet I also have the sneaking suspicion that it's a false dichotomy, right? That they're actually, it's like an artifact of our misperception that we even separate the two at all. And in fact, we can sort of like acknowledge that this system, which I think that you and I kind of agree is, has some fundamental issues that we need to kind of work out with some degree of urgency, you know, because the biosphere um, isn't like waiting to unravel. It's unraveling now. Uh, that, 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 it, it the, the system that is currently the problem has already been that which has constructed us. So the mind that is attempting to find a way out is the very mind that was built, or the very human, you know, that was built by the system which is self-terminating. And so there's this kind of like, like recursive chicken and egg problem when we think about systems change in personal development. And so, you know, I, in any case, like the conversations I had on the podcast have always been like looking in, kind of refracting through a side, but always acknowledging that you can't talk about one without the other, that there is a way in which they're deeply together. They are not separate. And that I think the attempt to, to do systems change without changing our perception, changing our perspective, is itself like deeply misguided in some fundamental way, which I can't even really express. It's more of like a felt sense. And similarly, like the idea that we can somehow just 
atomize ourselves and change ourselves over here without a relationship to the larger system and the systems that we're embedded in. That also is, well, first of all, it feels very boring to me, but then also I think is just not like a real thing. It's kind of like a bad thought. It's like not actually how things work in the world. Um, mm. So yeah, that's, that's kind of like where I'm at. And with the, with the shift in the podcast, it was kind of like noticing that I was sitting over here with the kind of um, in the personal change, kind of reaching out to the systems change, if we're going to maintain this dichotomy. And now I'm kind of moving over with the view that I have generated through all these conversations, speaking with people like some of whom you're speaking with, um, that I now have of like, okay, like this is the flavor, the taste, the texture of the world that we want to create together. Like how then do we then look back on what is possible in terms of personal transformation from that new view? Mm. And so that's kind of the, the shift. It's, 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 it, for me, I experience it as being quite subtle. Um, but it also will re re result, I think, in, in quite different conversations going forward. Mm. I mean, something that's coming to mind for me while you were speaking there is this sense that human beings, we are ourselves systems mm. that exist within systems. We're a system of thoughts and recurrent thoughts and recurrent emotional patterns and indeed yeah bodily systems, gastro systems, fluids and electricity moving around us all the time. And there isn't a line between that system and the external system really other than say the skin and what mm. we can feel. But like if I didn't eat this morning, then I would be grouchy now. If I didn't have yeah. friends and family and loved ones around me, then I'd be a hell of a lot more miserable than I am mm. now. Mm -hmm we wouldn't be having this conversation if it wasn't for the fact that we both exist within some kind of shared system within one another. Mm -hmm. And you know, it makes me think perhaps even to this idea that we've lived under this, this idea of say perhaps individualism for quite a long mm -hmm. time that people are autonomous rulers of this own kingdom that begins here and ends there. Yes. And that legitimizes a lot of the, the economic structures we live under as well, because the people who are most effective at ruling that kingdom from here to here are those who get to win. Mm -hmm. But well, when you pick it apart, it's not so simple. There's that phrase, man is legion, for example, mm. which mm. I really like. And I think that really speaks to the matter. Like each one of us is, many competing sub personalities and some of them are oriented towards might be called the true and the good and the beautiful and some of them are not yeah. and understanding that and getting just a, a feel for that before even really trying to go in and incise on it and and change it but just understanding how all these pieces are, are working and where there's conflict between them and where there's harmony it matters and it seems from that perspective now like artificial to draw that line between what happens here and what happens out there because they're one's a microcosm of the other mm. yeah yeah and, and what comes to mind and this is i think you know something that zach stein has really clarified for me um 
who I know you've had on the, the show recently, it's like, uh, I, I sometimes think about it in terms of like maladaptive software that's been installed. If, if and So, you know, we can, we can play with a way of looking that sees that there is no such individual or no such thing as an individual, right? And that can be very useful to kind of see the situation in a, in a new way, perhaps. It can also be very useful to see that there are individuals, like that I'm talking to you. And that can help us kind of reflect or refract the situation in a different way. And so one of my kind of operating assumptions is that that sort of flexibility in how we look is actually the kind of meta move that's most important, that we can, say, operate from the perspective of the human. And in, in, in the case that you're speaking about, like what comes to mind is liberal humanism and the way in which this, this kind of philosophical, almost like it, it is a kind of metaphysics. It's a claim about the way the world works, right? So it, the way that I render it is like uh, liberalism is this idea that we ought to design uh, an economic system that more or less is oriented towards satisfying human preferences. Right, that we and and humanism is the like you said is something like the that man is the measure of all things, and so you you look at that kind of core operating system, which for me was so deeply embedded into my psychology and my organism, that it's taken me years to even sort of be able to peer out of it, and you kind of collectivize that, and you see, of course, we're destroying the planet. Of course, we're destroying the planet if you take those two core assumptions. Um, and it also kind of comes down and creates this sense of, you know, other things create this too, but of, of me being over here, you being over there, me somehow having some kind of separate, uh, uh, apart existence from the systems that I'm embedded in. And so I, I think it's really helpful to look at what are the assumptions and ways of seeing that perhaps are constellating the problem, like you say, like it's not so simple. We need to spend perhaps all of our time, almost all of our time, actually getting clear about the situation and the problem space and, and less of it acting, I think, um, because to act with a misunderstanding of what the problem actually is, is quite likely to just create new problems that we then have to solve. Oh, I can't hear you. Once that's me, still can't hear you. You can hear me though. Oh, there you go. Yeah, you got me. Yep. Okay. Now, now I have to try and remember that thread. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, what am I thinking? There's right conflict conflict that exists within people that so often then ends up getting mm. projected outwards is mm. fascinating and perhaps one of those real interesting insights say of the, the depth psychology movement that mm. often the parts of self that we are most uncomfortable with we will identify in those around us mm. and really pick on. Yeah. So 
I mean, I can talk from experience having at times felt like I've been just out of control with certain destructive behavior patterns, consumptive behavior patterns. Mm. And then when I see that happening, I see someone else engaging in that, there's like a real visceral disgust to it. It's like, mm. dude, why are you doing that? Mm. Mm. Um, and, and when we're talking about this personal development growth stuff, I mean, that's such a broad umbrella, but mm. I think, well, a big part of it for me recently has been like understanding these points of conflict and then Hey, trying to just like, if the conflict can't be gotten rid of, then at least get rid of some of the feelings of frustration or guilt around the fact mm. that that conflict exists. Mm. Um, I'm actually not entirely sure where I'm going with that. Mm. Have you got anything you can riff with there? Mm. 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 Yeah, well, I mean, there's... There's a, there's a kind of sophistication that I think that you're referring to, which I, in, in my world, so part of the reason why I made this shift in the podcast is also because I live at um, this place called the Monastic Academy. And there I'm doing a lot of work to design curriculum. And the, the, the stated purpose of the curriculum is to create what we sometimes call awakened leaders. But essentially you can unpack that to mean people who have the capacity to lean into the world in such a way that it kind of bends toward justice, bends toward goodness, constructs the more beautiful world our hearts tell us is possible. And, and so there's this ongoing inquiry about how do we create those people? What does it mean to create those people? And when I hear you speak about how you have this kind of reflexivity about what it means to judge another. Um, that for me is like a kind of, <laughs> almost like a core component of that sort of person, right? That, and and I, I mean, we have this, we do a practice called circling at, um, and you're familiar with circling. Mm. Uh, it's like a relational meditation practice at, at Maple uh, Monastic Academy. And um, one of the teachers there has brought this fantastic little, um, what is it like, add-on, uh, practice within circling, which is called mirror swords. And so um, we typically have like a, a sign, like some, if, if this is audio, you can't see it, but I'm holding my hand in such a way that and I can indicate you, right? And so I say, I, I have a mirror sword for you. And that's a, that, that means like a judgment that I have about you, but that I know the, that I then hold up the mirror because it also means that I have the ju that judgment about me. Right? And this is like a very, as you say, like a union sort of, this goes way back, but that we can even see that I think is a huge innovation in human consciousness because most people are just totally blind to the way that they project that out into the world, right? And how much peacefulness and coherence can we generate by owning our projections, but then also like by sharing them with each other so that we can all grow if that's the state of intention. So that's like, I love that kind of thing. I love it because not just to, to see, oh, I'm judging you. I must have that part inside of me and I probably have a kind of messed up relationship with it. 
but then also to, to either tell other people, because that's like a courageous thing to do and quite beautiful, I think, but also to be told, for somebody to care enough about you to give you their nasty shit, their nasty judgments. It's like, I, I experience that as being such a gift and so beautiful when people care enough about me to tell me how they like see, you know, are judging the hell out of me. Um, and, and, and for me, that's increasingly, I see that as like a core capacity of these kinds of people that we want to create is like the courage and willingness to be transparent about these kind of things instead of, as is very common in spiritual circles, kind of just like hiding them and maybe doing the work yourself a little bit. But like, you know, I don't, I don't want to be seen as judgmental. I don't want to be seen as having these tendencies. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's what that brings up to me. Yeah, there's something very liberating about being able to show those. Oh my god, less. What would I call them? It's not less desirable, but like less normally socially acceptable sides of self yeah. to others. Yeah. And it's, it's you know, I've been thinking a lot recently around this idea of perfection and this standard of perfection mm. that I think to, to some degree. Well, I don't know if I can say everybody because I don't know, but I certainly have walked around with it inside my head. Like, I think there's a deep unconscious sense of like having to be perfect and having to be perfect means having to like everybody and be totally at peace in every situation and, and manifest a kind of goodness and trust and love towards everybody. But the issue is that if that just leads to you being inauthentic and holding back, then then it's missing something. And there is that freedom that comes with, with opening that space up and really being able to just own in company the fact that we have, we have nasty bits. You know, I'm reminded of my, a conversation we had with Ian McGilchrist a few months mm. back. And one of the things that just reminds that stuck in my head was he said, as a psychiatrist, one of the things that he just heard and was fascinated by over and over again was how many people on a deep level really believe that they're perfect and that they have to be perfect. Mm. But how much inner conflict and as a result, outer conflict gets produced as a result of the fact that things don't really match up with that idea. Um, and I guess where my thought has gone recently is like, if it is a correct statement to say that there seems to be something that exists within, what would you say, the unconscious makeup of at least a lot of us, is this idea of perfection, where does that come from? Mm. How did we learn that idea? Mm. Um, mm. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's a fair judgment mm. of people to have? To not judge oh anybody. boy description of psychic makeup well i mean i can certainly um i'll speak for myself because i don't have a lot of training in this area but um uh i've been sometimes i i use the four facet model from integral philosophy to talk about like human development so i've been doing a lot of what what is called in that model cleaning up recently like working with shadow material sort of like what we've been talking about a little bit. And um, I've noticed for me that my drive to perfection is constellated as a response to a deep feeling of inadequacy, worthlessness, and brokenness. 
right? That there's this kind of like feeling belief that I'm worthless, that I'm somehow fundamentally broken. And that like that got encrusted over with this compensatory drive towards appearing to be perfect and smart and competent. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's been a ball and chain that I've been wearing for most of my life. And it's only recently as I've kind of gotten underneath it to look at these sort of wounds or these beliefs that I felt a little bit liberated by it. But I, I, in my model, I think, as I'm speaking, I'm realizing this in my model, I imagine, or I believe that those who feel that like intense drive to perfection also have in them this deep wound of inadequacy, worthlessness, something like that. And so that I noticed that having that perspective generates a lot of compassion, both for myself in those instances, but also for others who I see operating from that mm, perspective. Yeah. Yeah, how yeah. About you? I'm curious what you what you feel about it or like what's, what's well no, I think that that resonates. I mean where where I've been thinking is more from the actual I've been thinking about it in terms of religion and spiritual worldviews actually. Mm. And where mm. my wondering is is that is it some kind of hangover from seeing existence through like a kind of two world lens? And mm. that there is the perfect divine sphere and then the fallen, sinful, corrupt human world. Yeah. And just wondering if, you know, you used the word software earlier in the conversation, if yeah. that software has been run by people for, mm. for thousands of years, we may say, at least hundreds, at least a couple of thousand years. Yeah. And then even if perhaps we no longer consciously adhere to the idea that this is the world of original sin i'm lapsing into christian language but we're in the west we're no longer we're still in that world and that there is the transcendent world that exists somewhere but it's not accessed through church anymore i mean even perhaps it tacks itself onto that mythology of of liberal humanism like that perfect world exists in that place you can get to if you just yeah. buy the right there. things. Yeah. Sort yourself out, buy the right things. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think there's a lot to what you're saying. I think it's, um, yeah, there's so many different ways of looking at this. And, and I, I think I haven't yet explored as much as I ought to the sort of Christian roots of some of these ideas. Uh, but it must be the case, right. That like that original sin, is functioning in my consciousness to a greater degree and our consciousness to a greater degree than we think. And um, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I think, you know, in, in general though, like what also comes up for me is that within the sort of more spiritual milieu, there's this very um, kind of this platitude that everything is perfect, right? Like, uh, and, and you should acknowledge that everything is perfect spiritually, everything is perfect. Uh, and to a certain degree, um, if you could just see that, you would be happy and chill and whatever. Um, and again, it, what comes to mind is, is what we really want to cultivate is a flexibility in ways of seeing, because it's really awesome to see that everything is perfect. It's excellent. It's an excellent way to see things, that you are already perfect, that nothing needs to be done, that perfection is like an imminent experience that is just available to you right now if you just stop struggling. Right. That's awesome. 
really profoundly beautiful. And also like shit is mad broken and we have to work our asses off to fix it. And I want to be around people who can like oscillate skillfully between those two and many other ways of seeing the situation, because that's really for me, like, that's the, that's the key. That's the dance is like, can we like pick up and let go of these frames in order to explore usefully and be of benefit in this time of transition? It's like that you can't get stuck. And even when I say, Oh, you know, the, this drive to perfection has its roots in, inadequacy it's like that's just a way of looking that depends on a whole psychological frame that you know i'm not committed to like that might be completely wrong way to look at it maybe it's better to look at it in this case more like from a christian kind of historical construction or maybe it's better to look at it like from a the perspective of the sacred that we're all kind of like struggling in this schoolhouse of life to overcome those kind of what look like wounds but are actually catalysts for our own development and for the like the salvation of the world, like maybe that's more of an interesting and useful way to look at it. I don't know, but I, I want to be around people who like also don't know and want to play like that. Mm, yeah, I'm thinking now of the last chapter of, of Zach Stein's book that mm. I read because of well, your podcast. And mm. you know, you know the last chapter, right? I presume where he's talking Remind me. about. So the book's on education for people listening. And the last chapter is really about spiritual education. Mm. And he quotes a bunch from Slavoj Zizek's writing on mm. Western Buddhism. And yeah. Zizek's argument that <laughs> in some sense, a certain form of Buddhism has become the religion par excellence of <laughs> capitalism. Yeah. For the very fact that it pretty much teaches except yeah 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 yeah. except the way things <laughs> are that. yeah yeah be at peace with it um life is suffering but you can transcend it if you just let go of your desires <laughs> which is kind of funny given that i mean as you've already pointed out like the paradigm we live under is all about the satisfaction of desires and a kind of weird sense of transcendence through achieving and chasing desire mm-hmm. Mm. yeah yeah i love i love his critique i mean he called he's he this is very strong language he calls it i think the hegemonic ideology of late capitalism which that's pretty caustic that's pretty radical and yeah i mean what comes to mind is just like i know so many people okay wait let me make sure this is a fair assessment i used to live in boulder colorado very much a center for spirituality in America. And there were, I knew, or it was common for people to be Buddhist and just consume so much stuff. Go to Whole Foods, you know, participate in this whole emerging economy. And there's something that feels to me very tricky about this area it's like i and i i did it too i did it too and i used buddhism i used these practices to kind of numb out and to chill while participating in what i if i really ask myself if i'm really honest with myself are systems that are destroying the planet and so there's 
there's something more here than just, there's gotta be something more here than just feeling good and feeling at peace and giving up some of our desires for our own well-being. And it's, yeah, I don't know what else to say other than I, I just, I really feel resonant with that concern that Slava Zizek has. I, I don't think he gives enough credit to Buddhism. I think like Western Buddhism is a, is a kind of particular synthesis of Buddhism that is, you know, or the, the Western Buddhism that he was critiquing is, is a particularly problematic strain of Buddhism. It doesn't have to be like that. And, and Buddhism itself isn't any particular way, but yeah. Mm. Yeah, well, I'm interested in the perhaps the contrast between spiritual practices that seem to be about escaping and transcending the world versus ones that seem to be about optimizing yourself for actually being in the world. Mm. 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 Um, no, I think you get strands of that within all origins. I mean, it reminds me, it goes back to that point I was making, perhaps that is again, my thinking around that two world mythology. If you're constantly wrapped up in the sense that there is the perfect sphere and we're not in it. And the way to get there, well, I don't know if it's through spiritual practice, but it's through something, but you're never quite there. And so there's always a kind of inability to be fully present with the here and now mm. perhaps mm. Mm. although that's interesting because then i think of the mindfulness movement which seems to have taken the practices out of the east and removed them of their spiritual bent and then it's like well mm. it's all about learning to be in the here and now but i think that also mm. loses something so now we're back mm. to our multi-perspectivalism again yeah so it's so tricky and this is i mean this is why i spend so much of my time uh, tr kind of quote unquote trying to figure out right like how do we deploy what John Verveke would call like an ecology of practices in such a way that it actually resolves some of these like maladaptive conditionings and ways of looking such that we are like we can be liberated to participate in this time between worlds like what does that look like and it is not easy. It is not easy. It's not easy. And there's so many ways in which these practices, these technologies can, instead of liberating that possible future version of ourselves, become reduced into something that reifies and gives permission to some of that maladaptive conditioning. And it's like, very, 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 very tricky. Each time that I think I have a, or, or typically when I think that I know what it will take, I later find that I was actually like doing the very thing that I was just saying, kind of like taking a partial perspective and like wanting it to be a certain way. And, uh, it's it's uh, endlessly fascinating to me and endlessly humbling. Mm. I've been spending some time more recently in the kind of circles of Alexander Bard, the philosopher, mm. who he is interesting because he seems to be in this space, but then also with a kind of a different angle on it. I think he seems to be having this spirituality around 
creativity and creating yeah. a sense of a grand narrative. I mean, I suppose one of his big mm. points is we need a grand narrative again, mm. which, well, it's interesting to observe that he seems to get under the skin of some of the more American, like Anglo-Saxon people in this mm. space who, mm. there's a sense that actually grand narratives are over and that we need this like uh, metamodern multi-perspectivalism, but also mm. like, to chill out and let come, let emerge, rather than trying mm. to, to like mm. push through it. I don't know if I'm doing the best justice to mm. this perspective here, but there is that, it's an interesting dichotomy that's going on there. And I'm fascinated by the fact that mm. there seems to be some rivalry. Mm. Like, mm. for example, I've heard Alexander refer to the kind of stuff that a bunch of you North Americans doing is that they're doing good stuff, but ultimately they're just sitting around in circles talking. Which, which people? Who is he um, so I would think the, the Neurohacker Collective guy, uh -huh. the uh -huh. Rebel Wisdom guy. So, like the know, collective people, intelligence stuff. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That yeah. stuff. Yeah. Like, yeah. John Vavaki as well. Like, I think, in fact, the language he's used is like, they're working on, on the will to intelligence, but not the will to transcendence, which is... Hmm to build, to actually build that which comes next, as opposed to just, he would use the phrase, talking about what comes next. Mm, 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 mm. Yeah, I mean, sure. And we need to talk about what comes next before we build it. And we probably should, you know, talk about it well. And when, when that tipping point comes, I think is, um, you know, different people have different sensibilities around that. And also, like, I kind of agree. I mean, that's why I live where I live. I'm, I feel like I am, in fact, building and participating in creating what comes next, which, mm. you know, we could get into that. But, um, you know, I'm, I also would, <laughs> I, I talk a lot about kind of perspectival flexibility and meta perspectival flexibility. At the same time, if all of that flexibility is not in service, of a grand narrative, so to speak, then like it feels quite masturbatory, right? And I think that that grand narrative is implicit in things like the Neurohacker Collective, right? Mm. But we can make it explicit. The world is on fire. Leverage your perspectives, choose perspectives accordingly, right? This is the time to show up. This mm. is the time when we need heroes. You ought to become a hero. Use your perspectival flexibility to create or recreate yourself as a hero. And that for me is the creative impulse, right? Is that we now get to de decide, it's hard, we can do it, to create ourselves into these heroic individuals who can stand forth and attempt to do the impossible, the seemingly impossible of what Jordan Greenhall calls threading the eye of the needle and actually coming out the other side of this in a way that we're better off than when we started. And that is exciting to me. That, that for me, like, fills me with, you know, libido, as Alexander Bard might, might call it. Yeah. yeah, that felt good, Daniel. That, <laughs> <laughs> that felt passionate. I liked it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is what I care really almost the most about, I think, in the world. So this is kind of, this kind of thing.
Hello, people, once again. And if you made it this far, well done. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you like what we're doing, then please consider supporting us on YouTube and on your podcast app, sharing the content round and talking to people about it. And also consider giving us a donation on patreon.com forward slash technosocial so we can keep growing the show. Ciao.